welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. And while you're there, I do encourage you to check out the other podcast that I do called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at more recent movies that are out in theaters or on VOD, streaming services, wherever you catch your new movies. I will review some of them, the ones that catch my interest anyway, or the ones I think that you might be interested in. And you can find a link to that at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into a three-part series. I just did a four-part series looking at Jaws, so we might as well look at some other underwater menaces. Specifically here, I'm going to be looking at a trio of movies that deal with genetically altered sea creatures that put humans uh, below them on the food chain. The film I'm going to be doing next is called a ripoff of Jaws in many ways, but maybe one of the better of the ripoffs of Jaws. It's called Piranha. I know technically maybe it's supposed to be called Piranha, but for the purposes of this review, I will call it by what pretty much everybody else calls it, at least in the United States. Piranha from 1978. It is an R-rated film. It contains nudity, violence, gore, and language. The runtime is an hour and 34 minutes. Bradford Dillon, Heather Menzies, Kevin McCarthy, Keenan Wynn, Dick Miller, Barbara Steele, Bruce Gordon, and Paul Bartell are in the film. Joe Dante is the director. John Sayles provides the screenplay. Now, obviously, I mentioned that this is a ripoff of Jaws. I would more call it like a spoof that plays in the same waters, so to speak. But the monumental success of Jaws back in 1975, that provided a game changer in the filmmaking industry. Steven Spielberg took this B-movie premise and then elevated that to an A-movie status, not only because it became the highest grossing movie of all time, but it also very improbably received an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. And it also made the public ravenous for more movies just like Jaws. Now, B-movie super producer Roger Corman, he thought that Jaws was really, in essence, one of his movies, only with a much higher budget. So to capitalize on the wave of underwater menaces, that seemed to be a given for Corman, but how was he going to do it? And fortuitously, knocking on the door of Corman's New World Pictures was a former Warner Brothers production assistant named Jeff Schechtman and his partner, Japanese actress Chaco Van Leeuwen, with this pitch for a Jaws-like horror flick. Now, in their possession, they had this Richard Robinson script that they developed, and they were shopping around town, and it was about piranhas in a river that attacked whoever was unfortunate enough to take a dip in that river. Now, with Jaws 2 set to come out in 1978, Roger Corman, he sensed a wave of excitement was going to spill over into this similar but much less expensive idea. However, Corman, he really didn't care that much for Robinson's script, but the title tested well as far as marketability, so he bought it, and he told his story supervisor, Francis Dole, otherwise known as Francis Kimbrough, that he wanted it to be rewritten. Corman wanted a new screenplay to follow the blueprint of Jaws, having a fish that could kill in the waters of North America. He wanted piranha attacks to happen about every 15 minutes or so, as well as to find occasions to bring in some choice female nudity. Now, around this time, John Sayles, he was a novelist that moved to California, and 
he came to California to make fast money as a screenwriter because he could churn out a lot of screenplays. Once he gained some cachet doing that, he could sell some of his personal passion projects, like the script that he had for this baseball film idea called Eight Men Out. And hopefully he could fund his uh, film project that he wanted to direct called The Return of the Secaucus 7. Now, sales agent connected him with Dole on revising the script for Piranha for Corman. Sales had gotten good reviews for his 1975 book called Pride of the Bimbos, and Dole, she happened to be an avid reader of fiction, and she was very familiar with some of Sales' short story work that had been published in the issues of The Atlantic. Here was a top-quality talent that could be had for a meager price because he wanted to get his foot in the door of Hollywood. So Sales signed on for $10,000 to provide five weeks of work as a writer. Now, Sales happened to be a cinephile as well as a novelist, and he showed that he had an eye for being a director early on as well. Piranha happened to be his very first screenplay, so he relied on his tendencies of a fiction writer in putting in notes in his script for the eventual director on how he thought that the shots should look and how the actors should behave during each scene. This mutually beneficial arrangement led to Sales entering into a three-picture deal with Roger Corman as both a screenwriter as well as a script doctor. Now, Corman told Sales to disregard the Robinson script, except for the title and the North American setting. He wanted Jaws to be the real blueprint on what to do. Corman contributed suggestions like having the climax be at a summer camp that was full of kids. He thought that would be much more unnerving to the viewing audience. The Seals learned from his interactions with both Dole and Corman how to maintain momentum for a film by finding ways to add suspense and intervals in which to add some humor and to relieve audiences from the tension, at least temporarily. Now, after Seals had completed two drafts of Piranha, Corman started seeking a director. Alan Arkish and Joe Dante, they had both collaborated on directorial duties for their debut, really cheap debut film called Hollywood Boulevard. And that was for New World Pictures. They had come up in New World after spending some time editing trailers and becoming quite good at what they did there. Corman gave them each a choice of projects that they could work on as solo directors. They didn't have to direct together for the next one. One of them could direct Rock and Roll High School, and that was from the story idea that was contributed by both Arkush and Dante, and the other would direct Piranha. Now, as a former stage manager for rock venues, Arkush said that he really wanted to do Rock and Roll High School because that was an idea that he had for a movie since he was a kid. So Dante... He took Piranha, but he wasn't very excited to be stuck with it. He thought that Piranha was an uninspired idea, and it was coming too late to earn money as a mere Jaws ripoff. Nevertheless, it was a solo gig that he could use to move on to get better things later, so he proceeded forward with it. Hollywood Boulevard's John Davidson, he would come in to produce Piranha with Dante. Dante liked what Sales had done with the script. He had fixed the central issue of finding plausible ways to get people into the water after they discover the Piranhas, the Robinson script instead contrived things like a forest fire or a bear chasing the people into the river, and it just wasn't plausible. So Sales had the protagonist rafting down the river to warn a summer camp for kids in the area and a party later for a newly built resort there. And the result was an additional Corman suggestion. It was not in the original Sales script because he wanted to provide a Jaws-like sequence that also would include a lot of women in bikinis to be shown on the screen. 
Sales regularly met with Corman and Dante and Davison and Dole to work on his script revisions. Dante got along great with Sales because they had similar backgrounds, kind of from the same area of the United States, and they shared an interest in old creature feature movies, and they both had left-leaning politics that they would talk about from time to time. And Dante really liked Sales' blending of this science fiction concept with this anti-Vietnam commentary by having the fish the result of an army experiment to infest the cold water rivers of North Vietnam. Corman, though, he really didn't care for the serious tone of the script by Sales at this point. He advised Sales to add some comedic touches to provide relief from his political themes as well as the horrific elements. He thought that audiences would stay on board if they found enough humor and, of course, titillation to keep them interested in what happens, even if the story doesn't necessarily grab them. After this, they enlisted a special effects team, and they brought on some technicians who were coming off of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They had to creatively work with a very small effects budget of only $50,000. Dante wanted to include a small stop-motion animated lizard creature from the Army Lab that would be crafted by Phil Tippett as this homage to Ray Harryhausen. It was meant kind of as an early clue for the audience on what kind of film that they were going to be watching. The scripted ending of the film was to be that creature coming back again. It would be giant size, mammoth size, and it would be attacking the people on Santa Monica Pier. After the last line of the film is uttered, there's nothing left to fear. We would have this big stop-motion animated sequence of this creature destroying that pier. However, they ran out of budget to shoot that sequence in the end. They contemplated putting a final shot of a car running that creature over before they just decided to just leave its whereabouts as unexplained. Makeup man Rick Baker, he was sought, but he was unavailable to come in to do some of his handiwork. Baker recommended his protege, then 17-year-old Rob Botine, to help Phil Tippett and his wife Jules create the 76 rubber piranha creatures that were made for the production. They used cutouts for some of the piranha action, but a lot of those rubber piranha came into play, though not all of them, for reasons I will get into. Now, they sought Peter Fonda to be the main star, but when he saw this script, he viewed it as very cheap schlock. It was likely to be terrible, so he passed. Roger Corman then tried to get James Coburn, and when Coburn's agent would not return Roger Corman's calls, he deceptively put out a press release stating that James Coburn was going to be starring in Piranha, and he did this as a trick to get a callback from that agent, which he did, but he did not have luck getting Coburn to sign on board. So then they moved on to Bradford Dillman, who accepted the role. Now, Dillman had concerns about his character being too two-dimensional, which is standard for a Roger Corman film, but Sales agreed to work with Dillman to round out his character before the shoot progressed. For Dr. Hoke, which is this mad scientist that they end up meeting, they first cast Eric Braden. Braden had recently worked with Dillman in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. On his first day, though, Braden went to the USC Olympic Pool location for some preliminary shooting, mostly underwater. But after he witnessed the scene in which there were rubber piranhas attacking kids, Braden called Dante that night and he politely told him that he really did not want to be in such a shoddy picture. Now, Dante had no hard feelings. He really actually did understand why Braden wanted to depart. He thought that this was going to be a really schlocky film, and Dante did not have a lot of confidence in it himself at that point. Now, Braden, in interviews, has insisted that he walked out before they shot any film with him in it. He's very adamant about it, 
But Joe Tante says that some of the underwater shots that he used in the finished film do show some work that Braden did. They show him from a distance. And coincidentally, for some of you fans of soap operas, Melody Thomas, or Melody Thomas Scott nowadays, she also appears in the movie. She went on to play Braden's wife on The Young and the Restless sometime later, and they both still appear on that show to this day. Now, Dante credits Braden's departure here for serendipitously allowing him to cast one of his all-time heroes in films, Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy initially did not want to do such a cheapy B-movie, especially for Roger Corman, and he certainly didn't want to do a a non-union film. But Dante happened to be a huge fan, and he really won him over with flattery and sweet-talked him into it. And they eventually became good friends outside of the production. They started this relationship that continued until McCarthy's death in 2010. Coincidentally, Dante later cast Braden for Inner Space and then replaced him yet again with Kevin McCarthy. Now, Barbara Steele, she was cast in this mad scientist role, but not the Dr. Hoke role. There's another mad scientist in this film. It was originally written to be for a man named Dr. Mangers. She lobbied hard, though, to play the Dr. Hoke character because she was tired of playing purely evil characters like Mangers. Dante, though, thought that having the hero... Paul Grogan beating up a woman in their initial encounter would make him less sympathetic to the audience henceforth. So Steele still refused to part, and Dante's flattery didn't quite win her over the way that uh, Kevin McCarthy was won over, but she did say that she might take the role if she could have a conversation with the writer about making some changes to her character. And Sales obliged, so she signed on to appear. Heather Menzies, probably most well-known at that point for her role as Louisa Von Trapp in The Sound of Music, she felt that her husband, actor Robert Urich, would not approve of her doing a topless scene as was intended in the script. So instead, they used a woman who happened to be working at the Holiday Inn that they were all staying at while they were in San Marcos, Texas. They used her for the insert shot for that topless scene. A real estate investor named Buck Gardner, that was a part that Sales wrote specifically for Dabney Coleman. They thought that they could get him on board. That character was an intentional variation on the Mayor Vaughn character in Jaws. But they couldn't get Coleman, so Dante offered the part to Dick Miller, who had worked with him on Hollywood Boulevard, and they had a good rapport. Sales rewrote the role specifically for Dick Miller, although, you know, it's kind of a stretch for this Bronx guy to play a native Texan, I suppose, but he does good work, as he always does. As far as the extras that were brought on, they worked for about five bucks a day and a, and a lunch, a box lunch each day. Now, as far as the plot of the finished script, Bradford Dillman plays Paul Grogan. He's a reclusive alcoholic living in this cabin out in the woods in this undisclosed part of the United States, and he's visited by a skip tracer, kind of a a private detective named Maggie McCune, played by Menzies. She's out to find a couple of backpackers who've disappeared without a trace. Of course, we know what happens to them at the beginning of this film. They they go into a, a pool in the restricted army property, and then they're never seen again because yeah, this movie's called Piranha. Of course, we know what's going to happen. Grogan and McCune, their search leads them to this abandoned army research facility that is solely inhabited by this strange scientist, Dr. Hoke, played by Kevin McCarthy. And Hoke has been keeping up the research on Operation Razor Teeth, the code name given to this secret project whereby mutant carnivorous piranha fish become bioweapons that the army could use to destroy the cold water river systems of North Vietnam. But when the war ended, the research stopped, but this scientist would not abandon it. 
And then this mishap sees the piranha getting drained out into the nearby river, and that's where they begin to wreak havoc on anyone unlucky enough to be in the water with them. A lot more to the story than that, and this movie has a little bit of twists and turns. I'll leave it up to you as to whether you'll decide to watch it based on the rest of this review. Now, Piranha originally had a $900,000 budget, and United Artists agreed to fund about half that amount to garner international distribution rights. But when Dante and Davison's pre-production work that they did in Los Angeles for the opening scene proved to be too costly, Corman kind of went through the roof and he told them he was canceling the picture three days before the main shoot. Corman never planned to cancel, but he was a businessman first and foremost, so he let them stew on it a little bit. And then he cut the budget to $650,000 to make sure that they did a better job keeping expenditures down. But, you know, that was kind of a trick to get them to accept the budget cut. Producer John Davidson, he speculated that Roger Corman had slashed the budget because he needed more money to make another project he was doing, a big-budget production of 1978 called Avalanche. That cost 10 times as much as Piranha. And that's why they were being defunded. Now, once production was underway for Avalanche, they hardly saw Roger Corman again. He really wasn't keeping tabs on who was in the cast. He didn't come to screen the dailies. He didn't visit the shoot to see how things were going. He was much more interested in what was going on with Avalanche. And ironically, though, Piranha, in the end, outgrossed Avalanche significantly, despite the higher budget and marketing push for Avalanche. Now, with this slash budget and a shooting schedule to be limited to 22 days, Dante had to shoot as much as he could as quickly as he could. And he invited Sales to join in on the shoot. He was going to put him in the movie, a cameo acting appearance. And he wanted him to be around so he could revise the screenplay on the fly to try as best as he could to hold the story together for the various changes that they might have to make because they didn't have enough time or enough money. And as Sales worked closely with the talent that they had on hand, he also rewrote a good deal of the the dialogue, the characterizations to fit the actors in their respective roles as he got to know them. They originally planned to shoot at a lake in the Los Angeles region, but there was a prolonged drought that saw it just about dry, so they opted to move the shoot to Texas to provide the locales. The shoot in Texas was near Austin and San Marcos, and Corman liked moving the shoot to Texas because Texas was a right-to-work state, so they could do all of their work there without needing to worry about union costs and the limitations. They could shoot as long as they wanted to, and they didn't have to deal with a lot of the rules and regulations that the actors' union typically restricts them to. The former Olympic swimming pool in Los Angeles, though, was used. It provided a location to shoot the underwater scenes, and they devised an amusement park sequence to be shot in the San Marcos area at the Aqua Rena Springs Water Park. But because that was a new location, they needed an extensive rewrite to accommodate the specific locations there. And there was also this resident pig that they became enamored with. It could do a lot of tricks. Its name was Ralph. And Sales suggested that they could really incorporate this into the story. They suggested going to this Mexican market nearby to buy a pig's head that they could use for the aftermath of a piranha attack on Ralph. But Dante put a stop to that. He insisted audiences would never stand for pets dying, especially one as cute as Ralph. Now, they never got to film every part of Sale's script, and that left gaps in the narrative and continuity errors that Dante would have to deal with later. The limited funds also made many of the intended effects shots, like footage of the piranha eating a variety of things and then growing bigger, those all had to go by the wayside. John Berg came in to do the special effects, although the budget was very limited, so he couldn't afford to do 
a lot of convincing fish action. Berg also strongly advised against this costly and time-consuming idea that John Davison had for using stop-motion piranha for the attacks. Instead, many of the piranha attacks that we have in the film are actually implied. Submerged actors, they were emoting in pain, clouds of, of this caro syrup used to resemble blood clouding all around them. They had planned to have swarms of hundreds of piranha on the screen, but they could not show any more than two or three in a frame because they needed to handhold all of these fish on rods to simulate the action. Four of the rubber fish were created with metal teeth for the close-ups, and they shot all the footage at about eight frames a second to simulate high-speed action when it was done into the film. Three times the speed, really. And to increase the intensity, they added sounds to the piranha. They placed dental drills into a container of water that had a submerged microphone to simulate the sounds of the piranha on the attack. Now, the use of caro syrup, they mixed that with milk and additional food coloring, and they put them into the swimming pool with plants and foliage, and it all wrecked havoc on that Olympic pool at USC that they used to capture that underwater action. Once the weather began to heat up there in the Los Angeles region, a weird fungus spread all around the swimming pool. Growths became so odd and weird and disconcerting that USC... They brought in several scientists from up north to come down to examine these exotic mushrooms to determine what exactly they were. The pool had to be drained and sandblasted at New World's expense before it could be used again by the USC swimmers. And reportedly, the incident caused such an uproar at USC, they ceased renting out the pool for future film companies. During the editing phase, the rods and the wires that controlled these rubber piranha, they were visibly apparent, so they had to darken the footage, the frames used to obscure these attachments to the point where the piranha could barely be seen. And the best they could do to make it exciting would be to offer lightning quick disorienting editing to simulate the intensity of a piranha attack without showing off the artifice of these rubber piranha. As he edited, Dante felt they were just making the worst movie ever. He contemplated during this editing phase that this film might ruin his career just as it was beginning. And because of the gaps in the narrative, Dante struggled to piece together the existing footage into a cohesive story. John Sayles, who happened to be in the editing booth along with him, he looked over his shoulder to try to help, but he grew concerned that what he was seeing was falling far short of the story that he had developed in his original script. But because this was his first feature work, Sales, he stayed back and let Dante and his co-editor, Mark Goldblatt, figure out how to handle this jumble. Sales did contemplate during this returning to writing novels rather than screenplays because he felt that maybe he was not cut out for the movie business, which relied on collaboration with others that did not share the same vision that he had in his mind and how the story should proceed. And despite all of these many, many production issues, Dante did get it all together, and Piranha turned out to be... A huge success. It earned about $15 million domestically, and it became the most successful New World Pictures release to that date. It had also made about that much additional in international markets. In fact, in countries in South America that are home to real-life piranha, it made more money than Jaws there. And it would become that biggest money earner for Roger Corman to that point, and that's despite the limited regional rollout that they planned into theaters. But Critically, it was kind of a mixed bag, as a lot of these B-movies tend to be. Roger Ebert specifically selected Piranha on their TV show, Sneak Previews, on PBS stations. It was selected as his very first Dog of the Week, and that's where they picked the worst movie of the week on their show. Really, it was kind—it of, was not that bad to be chosen for Dog of the Week. On that same show, 
Gene Siskel picked Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke as the dog of the week, and that became another cult favorite for many people. Now, Dante shows here with Piranha a very good sense of maintaining a comic tone to make the horror schlock very tolerable for audiences that may not even be into horror films. This is very enjoyable on another level, as long as you can put up with a little bit of the gore. Now, it's not exactly a good film by most measures, but it is a good B-movie. It holds up as well as Jaws 2, I think, at less than 3% of the overall cost. The tongue-in-cheek attitude, these in-jokes, the very fun character performances by this very solid cast makes what might otherwise have been a terrible movie without the self-awareness of its derivative nature. As enjoyable as it is, I think the lasting element of Piranha is that it put Joe Dante and John Sayles at the forefront of becoming two prominent creative voices throughout the 1980s. They've done a lot of very memorable and pretty good work in the 1980s, and I'm sure I'll get into a lot more of their work. Now, although Joe Dante had made only $8,000 for directing Piranha, despite the fact that it made you know many millions of dollars. It still got him noticed, and because of its comparisons to Jaws, Piranha did draw the attention of Steven Spielberg, who proclaimed it the best of the Jaws ripoffs. In fact, Universal had planned, because it was coming out really within two months of Jaws 2, Universal had actually tried to sue Roger Corman for infringement because of the similarities to Jaws, but Spielberg, when he saw it, he actually talked to Universal out of it, saying this is actually a pretty good movie and not that much of a ripoff of Jaws once you actually watch it. Now, later on, Dante was selected by, by Universal, who were actually trying to sue him. He was selected to actually direct Jaws 3. But, you know, back then it was a spoof called Jaws 3 People Nothing, which I talked about very extensively on the review of Jaws 3, if you want to go back a few episodes. Universal did cancel that project, and some say because Spielberg did not like them turning Jaws into a self-mockery, even though you know Piranha was the self-mockery of Jaws in its own way. But Spielberg paid Dante back for losing that Jaws 3 gig by having him direct one of the segments of a future production from Spielberg called Twilight Zone, the movie. And that would start a creative collaboration between Spielberg and Dante that would last for several more films throughout the 80s. So it actually worked out for Dante. In the end, even though it was a daunting experience. And I do think that ultimately, Piranha does stand up to the test of time. It is definitely a movie that has a lot of entertainment value above and beyond the schlocky nature of it. Enough for me to give it three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that Piranha is a worthwhile film for people who like these kind of movies. If you're a big Roger Corman fan, if you like B-movies, if you like your Jaws ripoffs, or at least a continuation of the Jaws vibe, probably as good as any of the Jaws sequels, and a lot better than Jaws 3 and Jaws The Revenge would end up being. So I do recommend, if you like Jaws, to continue on with films like Piranha, because it has humor and a lot of good in-jokes, and certainly will reward those who like that sort of thing. So three stars out of four for Piranha from 1978. Now, this did have a sequel that was called Piranha 2, Flying Killers, or The Spawning, or it actually had a couple of different titles, but Roger Corman, he had sold New World Pictures around the time that they were uh, doing the production on it, and so it really wasn't a Roger Corman production in the end, and it's mostly unrelated to the events here. There is a little bit of tie-in, but uh, Corman did come back to the Piranha franchise in a way. In 1995, he had a deal with Showtime to put forth some new material for them, and he remade Piranha with different actors, and he used a lot of the, the special effects from the 1978 film to fill in the blanks very cheaply and a lot of people find this 
an unnecessary remake because it really does follow pretty much the same story as Piranha and does it with a lot less humor. But it does mark Mila Kunis, her acting debut. So if you're interested in that, I suppose you could check that out. There was a remake done in 2010 called Piranha 3D. So that was a 3D version of Piranha, and it had a lot more gore than the original Piranha. Some people like it. I don't remember if I like it or not. It did have a 2012 sequel as well called Piranha 3 Double D, which was much more tongue-in-cheek. And I do have reviews of both of those films on my website if you're interested in what I thought of it. I don't even remember offhand, but it will be interesting to see what I did think about Piranha 3D and 3 Double D. On my website, quipster.net. That's at Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, it's going to be, well, I mentioned it just a moment ago, Piranha 2, The Spawning. It came out in 1983 in the United States. It came out different years in different other locations around the globe. But it's most notable for being the debut film, the very first film directed, at least partially, by James Cameron. Yes, the filmmaker who made The Terminator and Aliens and Avatar and Titanic and all those other big, big, big films. Well, he started out very modestly. Piranha 2, The Spawning, on next week's episode. So check that out if you want to keep up with the reviews. If you have your own thoughts on Piranha that you want to impart, you can find my contact information at my website. Quipster.net is where to go. You can find links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram. All of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me. If you just want to say hi, you can do that as well. So Quipster.net, you'll find all of that information. Until next time, thank you so much for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 